0: to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Gillam and Ministry of Justice, and the citation for this case, 2019 UKSC 44. And the case that we are looking at this week centres around District Judge Gillam, who, following the significant government cuts to the Administration of Justice from 2010 onwards, raised a number of legitimate concerns to management. These concerns included having appropriate provision in terms of the actual courtrooms, her own workload which was becoming unmanageable, and also failures of administration within the court system. However, this case is not about the substance of these complaints, but rather the way in which they were handled. According to Gillam, she was ignored, undermined and bullied following the complaints that she made. There were also other practical consequences because when it was decided that her workload concerns were just a quote personal working style choice end quote it meant that she did not get enough support and eventually had to be signed off as a result of health concerns surrounding the deterioration of her mental well-being. In the end there was a two-part claim submitted to the employment tribunal and both of these claims depended upon Gillam being recognised as a worker for the purposes of section 230, subsection 3 of the Employment Rights Act 1996. Now, under that particular subsection, there are two options for the definition of a worker. Under the so-called limb A, a person is a worker if they have entered into or work under a contract of employment. Meanwhile, under limb B, which is the main sticking point in this case, a person is a worker if they enter into or work under a contract where they, quote, perform personally any work or services for another party to the contract whose status is not by virtue of the contract that of a client or customer of any profession or business undertaking carried on by the individual, end quote. In other words, if you have a contract for someone to do some work on your house, then they are not a worker with respect to you, because you are a customer, but other types of work under a contract do make someone a worker. Back to Gillam's two-part claim itself, and the first part is proceeding without any problems whatsoever because it is derived from EU law, under which it is accepted that she is a worker. Unfortunately, the second part of her claim only derives from part 4a of the Employment Rights Act, and the Employment Tribunal found that under UK law, she was not a worker for the purposes of her whistleblowing claim against the Ministry of Justice. That decision also had human rights implications as it meant that there was no protection against the infringement of her right to freedom of expression. Gillam's appeals to both the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Court of Appeal were unsuccessful, and so her case went to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. The question that the Justices started with is whether Gillam is a Lim-B worker under the 1996 Act, or if she is simply a person in Crown employment. As a judge, she does hold a statutory office, but that does not necessarily mean that there is a contract between the parties. Instead, it is necessary to look at the intention of the parties, and this is done by having regard to a range of factors, including how Gillam was engaged in the first place, what the rules and code of conduct was once she was engaged, and also the overall context of the situation. For those of you who have studied employment law in the past, this will be very familiar as it is pretty much the standard approach by the courts. What makes this case somewhat unique is the fact that the relationship between the parties does not come from negotiations, but instead from statute. The Supreme Court drew a couple of points from this fact. Firstly, it means that it is very difficult to actually identify some sort of actual employer. And secondly, if we were to assume that Gillam's ultimate employer is the Secretary of State for Justice, then the constitutional principle of the separation of powers mitigates against the idea that there should be a contract between a member of the executive branch and a member of the judicial branch. On the other hand, Gillam couldn't really be said to be in Crown employment either. It is not like judges are traditional civil servants who work in and around Westminster helping out government departments. Their aim within their role is to further the administration of justice in line with the oath of office that they take when becoming a judge, rather than simply aiding the Lord Chief Justice. Clearly the contract situations and whether Gillam was a worker or not were still a little bit up in the air, so Lady Hale, in her lead judgement, moved on to the human rights questions that were raised in this case. The allegations of failing to take complaints seriously enough alongside the supposed bullying and victimisation would represent an interference with the right to freedom of expression and free speech under Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights. However, if the claim was brought simply as a domestic human rights claim under the Human Rights Act 1998, then the relief available would be much more limited Hence the current proceedings under Part 4a of the Employment Rights Act 1996. If the remedies and protections under Part 4a were not made to extend to those holding judicial office, then the next question is whether this itself would constitute a violation of Article 14 of the ECHR, which is the right not to be discriminated against in the free enjoyment of rights under the Convention. The relevant right that Gillam is seeking to enjoy is Article 10, and we have already mentioned that this is within the ambit of her case. There is discrimination going on in this context because she is being treated less favourably than other employees and workers who become whistleblowers. For human rights purposes, Gillam does not need to be a worker, but instead just needs to have some sort of status within the meaning of Article 14. In this context, her occupational status is enough. Finally, this is not an absolute right, and so the justices had to come to a conclusion about whether the exclusion of judges is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. It seems that there isn't actually any legitimate aim whatsoever. None was put forward by the government, and there isn't any evidence that this was given any consideration whatsoever by Parliament when the protections offered by Part 4a were raised there. Bringing the strands of this judgment together we have to try and work out how the questions around Gillam's status as a worker square with the incompatibility of excluding members of the judiciary from the protections offered under Part 4a of the Employment Rights Act. The answer for Lady Hale came from Section 3 of the Human Rights Act 1998, which requires all legislation to be interpreted in a way that makes it compatible with human rights law so far as it is possible to do so. We already know from the other part of Gillam's claim that under EU law she qualifies as a Limb B worker, and so it is by no means a great stretch to also view her as a Limb B worker under human rights law as well. Such an interpretation allows her appeal to succeed, and so the case will be remitted to the Employment Tribunal where Gillam will be treated as a worker for the purposes of her claim. The first point to address in this case, right from the word go, is about the fact that throughout these proceedings, we are talking about judges making a judgment about a fellow judge, where the judgment will affect how judges are treated by the law in future cases. If this sounds to you like a conflict of interest, then the truth is that it probably is. And the whole situation is certainly far from ideal. Unfortunately, it is also true that there is not really anyone else who has the legal expertise to provide an answer to the important questions that these proceedings raise. And so we are just left having to trust that judges take their oaths seriously enough and are able to step away from the personal repercussions of their decision. Whether they did so successfully here is an open question and one that can only be the subject of speculation given that we cannot peer inside the minds of the judiciary. Nevertheless, the fact that different courts at different levels of the hierarchy reach different conclusions is likely a positive sign. The actual decision itself is a little bit questionable as the tether that runs from the start of the judgment to the conclusion is remarkably thin at times. To get to the point where it is held that a judge can be a limby worker the Supreme Court not only has to go through the comparison with EU law, making full use of the interpretive breadth granted by the Human Rights Act, but also demonstrate that Article 10 is engaged before making the related Article 14 case out. This is not to say that the decision is wrong or does not have a basis in the law, as each of the points on their own do stand up to scrutiny. But it is to say that linking all of these points together is, at the very least, a generous interpretation that helped Gillam no end. In particular, Lady Hale herself makes it very clear that the exact classification of Gillam in the context of Part 4a of the Employment Rights Act is very difficult as she is not an employee of the Crown, and importantly there is not really a contract in place. Putting other aspects of the judgement to one side, this part is probably the most difficult to reconcile, as section 230 subsection 3 explicitly requires a contract between two parties, and one is never really identified throughout. Judges do take an oath of office, but that is far from being the same thing as a contract. The problem that we encounter with this decision is that even though the judgment is far from great in a legal sense, it does satisfy a sense of natural justice. What Gillam has allegedly endured since she made her complaints is clearly unacceptable, and whether or not there ends up being a legal judgement made against the Ministry of Justice, it would seem incredibly harsh for her not to even be able to bring her case to court in these circumstances. That is what the conclusion would otherwise have been, and so some expansive judicial interpretation in this case can probably be forgiven. The potential floodgates that this might open are also relatively limited because this decision is quite specific to judges, although the subject of this judgment should raise questions for politicians about the severe legal limitations that are placed on those who are working in the public sector. Ultimately, your opinion of this judgment will probably vary based on your view of the judiciary. If you think that they should stick to applying the law, then you will likely disagree, If you think that they are entitled to the same protections in their job as everyone else, then you might be more tempted to turn a blind eye to this outlier. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. I would like to say an especial thanks to Mustafa and Kima, who both left five-star reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, That is always very much appreciated. As I always say, it helps to get the podcast recognition out there and puts us amongst the big boys. A little bit of behind the scenes from the podcast world is that a lot of the podcasts will pay to get their podcast promoted and get it higher up the rankings we don't do this so we're sort of reliant on your guys reviews and i think we're way past about 150 reviews at the moment so it's really great and it's just amazing to see sort of the popularity that the podcast has garnered since we started it in 2016 so that's completely amazing and thank you to everyone who takes the time to do that i'll be back with another case next week but for now bye